Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Salt Lake 2002 Retrospective Podcast, a back-of-house look at the planning and delivery of the Salt Lake 2002 Olympic Winter and Paralympic Winter Games, as told by the very people who organized them. I'm your host, Christian Napier, and I am super excited to introduce our guest for this episode, Chris Crowley. Chris, how are you? I'm doing fantastic. Thanks, Christian. I suspect you're a little busy these days. Uh, just slightly, as uh, most of the planet is. Well, you've got a particular role there on the front lines battling this uh, crazy virus. Why, why don't you give us a little bit of uh, explanation as to what you're up to these days? Uh, well, I am the um, public health emergency manager for Summit County now, and basically we're dealing with the coronavirus, uh, the same as most of the planet is, and, you know, learning every day. One thing that we do have going for us is that we wrote our pandemic, pandemic and um, biohazard plan in 2011. We're executing against it, and it seems to be working out fairly well for the moment. We just really need a vaccine. Absolutely. We all, the entire world needs a vaccine. So Summit County was one of the first counties in Utah that really saw this community spread of yeah. the virus and really was the first county to take some really proactive measures to combat it. Why don't you describe the thought process that you went through with your colleagues there in Summit County to take aggressive, proactive action? Yeah. And, you know, although we're a fairly small county in terms of population, we have lots of international visitors, lots of large events and and two very large uh, ski resorts. So in January, when we really started tracking this closely, again, utilizing our existing experience from writing these pandemic plans, we knew that we had to to be very cautious and, and careful about how this this virus was progressing across the United States. Because we have a very large transient population and lots of visitors coming in, we knew there was there was a potential for it to to spread inside of our community. And of course, that's exactly what happened. Um, luckily, our director, the executive director of the health department, is extremely proactive. He was very aggressive in terms of um, putting together our uh, our response team and certainly enacting. You know, we were the first county in in Utah to really aggressively, basically shut down activities within the um, within the community. And thankfully, we had good community partners, including the ski resorts, who agreed that closing the ski resorts early, which is no easy task, um, but closing those resorts early really made a big difference for us. Well, Chris, we could probably talk all day about the virus and everything, but that's not what we're here Absolutely. for. Absolutely. And, and trust me, I can talk all day about it. I'm sure. We'll swap stories another time. For Fair this enough. particular podcast, what I want to do is wind the clock back to reminisce about the games that we held here in Salt Lake City. Now, Chris, what was your role? Why don't you describe for our listeners your role and responsibilities there with SLOC? Sure. I was the general manager for the Park City Mountain Resort. And at that resort, we had um, the men's and women's half pipe. We had men's and women's uh, snowboard parallel slalom and men's and women's giant slalom, alpine giant slalom. Pretty good sized venue, nestled right in the heart of, of uh, historic Park City. 
and every challenge that you could possibly imagine uh, with being in that in that uh, environment, we we got to experience it. Well, I want to ask you about those challenges. I'm sure you've got a lot of great stories to share. But before we get to those, how did you get to Park City? I mean, because you're not from there originally, right? So no. what was your journey from wherever you came from to the Salt Lake Organizing Committee? Um, it's it's sort of a, a chain of coincidences, actually. Um, I was the director of events at the San Francisco convention facilities. I'd been there for 11 years. I started as an intern, um, but I was the director of events there. And I had a cursory level connection to Salt Lake because the company that I worked for also managed the Salt Palace. And one day out of the blue, I got a call from the Salt Lake Organizing Committee asking if I'd be interested in working on the Olympics. And, you know, as a, as a career event guy, that's sort of the dream job right there. And we started discussing what that would look like. And next thing I know, I was moving to Salt Lake. Wow. And so you make this change, not just a change in, in job, but it's a change in location. It's a change in climate. It's a change in culture. It's a change in elevation. How was that change for you? Um, well, I was a snowboarder and a skier, so that part wasn't so wasn't so difficult. Um, I did grow up in San Francisco. I was born, you know, throughout that whole summer of love and hippie era. My parents were hippies of sorts, and so culturally, it was a big, big change going from, you know, San Francisco, which still exists uh, as, exactly as people think it does. Um, you know that hippie culture has really never left and suddenly i find myself in the middle of a a relatively conservative community um with large families which you don't typically see in san francisco and um you know it was a fantastic experience for me as well and i appreciate it and i stayed i'm still here well i have to say as a also a person from the bay originally i was uh, born in burlingame and uh i still have family there in the bay mm -hmm. area salt lake city is actually quite diverse um the city itself the metropolitan area and also uh, up in your neck of the woods there in park city yeah as you mentioned there are people that come from all over the world to vacation there but there are also people from all over the world living there and so uh it actually is a much more diverse place at least in the metropolitan areas, than people perhaps give it credit for. Absolutely. And and that's one of the things that even today I have to answer those questions about, you know, how do you live in a uh, homogenous society? And it, it really isn't. And I agree. Salt Lake City is, is very diverse and Park City is peppered with people from all over the planet. It's great. So when you accepted this position, did you move into Salt Lake City proper or did you move to Park City or where did you actually relocate? You know, I had been to Park City um, for a couple of ski trips previously, so I knew I wanted to live in in the Park City area. I, I lived in, in Salt Lake for the first few months, but I did in fact move up to, up to Park City and it, it's kind of funny. Everybody was warning me about how it, how expensive it is to live in Park City. And I come from San Francisco. My first thought was, 
wow, this place is really cheap. <laughs> well, it's nice to have a frame of reference, right? Yeah. yeah, pretty much every place is cheap when compared to San Francisco, particularly these days. Absolutely. All right. So you're there in Park City. You're doing your thing. You mentioned that it was not an easy thing, that you faced all kinds of challenges. And anything that we could think of, you probably had to deal with. What were some of those interesting challenges that you faced and what were some of the creative solutions that you found to meet those challenges? I'd, I'd like to say that they were all creative solutions, but I've got to admit a lot of them were luck and a lot of them were by the uh, the help and good graces of, of the team, uh, our venue team, and certainly the community that supported us. Um, as you can imagine, we had... We had a lot of Olympic activities in in Summit County and Park City in particular. We had Deer Valley, which was also hosting Alpine events, Park City just down the street, and the Utah Olympic Park. So we were trying to put a lot, roughly on any given day, there could be 40,000 um, spectators visiting the same general area uh, along that Park City corridor. And Park City was not built for 40,000 people to come and visit for the day. So transportation was one of those, those significant challenges that we, we faced. And certainly at, at the Park City Mountain Resort venue, you know, it, it's a ski resort that supports a large, um, a, a large transient population of visitors. But it was not built to put a 10,000-seat venue in the middle of and, and to service that properly. So we had a lot of operational challenges that we had to, to overcome. And one of them, again, was being in the middle of a historic town that was not built with, with uh, transportation infrastructure nor any other kind of infrastructure to support those venues. So how did you overcome those transport challenges? I mean, the the roads getting up to Park City are multi-lane highways, and that's not necessarily a challenge. But once you get into Park City, it's closed, it's congested. There's exactly. not a lot of space for parking vehicles. So what did you do to resolve some of those transport issues? You know, and that's, that's where I do have to give credit to um, the Salt Lake Organizing Committee and our transportation planners. We had to put a lot of people in a place that just didn't fit a lot of people. And we did that usually through through buses, large, uh, you know, 40 to 50 passenger buses. And a very, very specific and coordinated effort is the challenge, of course, was the, the Utah Olympic Park was the first stop um, as you enter Park City. So there was always that possibility that traffic could be completely backed up at UOP before you even got close to either Deer Valley or, or Park City Mountain. But again, they, I think that our transportation planners really, really stepped up their game and had an extremely well-coordinated plan, which was completely integrated with our sport program as well, so that we had, we had our, our sports starting at staggered um, times so that we could, in fact, get our folks into the venues and out of the venues without creating without creating too much of a traffic jam. Did you have to be creative with the competition schedule so you were staggering time so you didn't have 40,000 people all leaving at the same time? Absolutely. And especially with UOP, again, being sort of that potential bottleneck right at the front of the 
entrance to the to our area, they had multiple sessions going on every single day. Um, both Deer Valley and Park City, we were constrained, of course, by daylight. We couldn't host our our events once once we got past that three three o'clock um, time frame. So we definitely had to work together and and stagger those times. You just mentioned daylight. Those are outdoor venues that you're dealing with, which are then exposed to the elements, to weather. Did you face any significant weather challenges? <laughs> well, just before the games, it did snow. We got we got a huge dump, and we spent probably the first few days just digging out of that. And uh, thankfully, though, for for the Park City venue, every single one of our competition days was blue skies and sunny. It was fantastic. Other venues did suffer some challenges. Um, Oddly enough, Deer Valley didn't have the best weather. I think we got all the good weather. They had all the challenging weather. And um, one particular date uh, on the day of our men's half pipe, Snow Basin, which was the, the Alpine downhill venue, they actually had to close because of wind um, and questionable weather, which shouldn't necessarily affect us. We were, we, our competition was on the same day. That shouldn't necessarily affect us, except that everybody left that venue and descended on Park City Mountain expecting to come in and watch the men's half pipe uh, that, was, that was going on that day. So you suffered the adverse impacts indirectly from the snow basin delays. Yeah. You know, at at first I did, in fact, um, think that I was going, I I thought of it as suffering, but uh, the decision was made, um, you know, with our executives that we were going to start selling tickets, that we were going to allow people to come in and enjoy the games just because you got, you, you had a weather delay or postponement at, at uh, Snow Basin didn't mean you shouldn't continue to enjoy the games. So we opened up the doors and we let a lot of people in on that day. And it turned out to be an amazing event. The The U.S. swept all the medals in the men's half pipe. It was an incredible event. And we really had a great vibe in the in the venue as well. And having all those people just added to it, it was really a tremendous experience. Well, you mentioned the challenge of dealing with 40,000 spectators and dealing with these unexpected challenges. Clearly, you didn't have to do that by yourself. You had a team of people, a bunch of paid staff and volunteers. But approximately how many paid staff and volunteers were working up there in that Park City cluster during the games? Yeah, we had in round figures, I think we were around 1,200 people on the venue. Um, And yeah, to your point, we had a venue capacity that we knew, and then on the day of the games, we were probably allowing another five to seven thousand people enter. But luckily, we were able to pull those staff, especially the event services staff from Snow Basin, to to help out with all of our our crowd management. You know, we have a large mountain that for for folks to to walk up and and have a great view of of the competition and. Like I said, it, it we had great weather. Certainly, if we didn't have good weather, it would have been a, a challenging or more challenging event. It, it, it 
all the pieces came together. And like you said, we had a great team and the team was able to integrate even with those, those outside um, teams coming in. It was, it was really seamless. Well, let's talk about the team for a minute. I personally felt like the team at Slock was one of the best teams of people that I ever worked with. I thought they were, it was just wonderful. There were so many great people who were some of the excellent, interesting, inspiring people that you worked with in the lead up to the games? Wow. That's a, that's a loaded, that's a tough question right there because, you know, we, we have a lot of people that, that pass through and you work with in various capacities and various aspects of the planning and delivery. You know, I always felt that we were supported by our, our leadership team, of course, and they already get too much praise anyway. So we'll, we'll go to the more practical level uh, planners and, you know, our, our folks who with event services, um, they did fantastic. Missy Hilton was, was our event services manager and she did a fantastic job. Our, um, our snow removal crew was absolutely the best. They, they really, really did a great job to keep our venue clear and clean. Um, Karen Corfanta was our sport manager. She, she came with infinite amounts of, of uh, experience. And, you know, she's not only was she a um, experienced event planner for all of these fist races, she was also an athlete as well. Uh, she was on the U.S. team for 1968, I want to say, in France. But, um, you know, it's just this incredible, incredible opportunity for us to really put together what I would consider one of the most amazing and dynamic teams I've ever had the opportunity to work with. Well, I totally agree with that. It was an amazing and dynamic team. I remember thinking to myself afterwards, if I would ever have that opportunity to work with such a great group of people again. And in some respects, I don't think it's been equaled, at least for me. Yeah, and, you know, I, I not to say anything bad about uh, other games that I've worked on, but I had a fantastic exp experience in Vancouver, uh, leading uh, two venue teams up there. And they were fantastic. I loved every moment of it. Uh, I also was the director of events at at um, Rio 2016 and did all, all the planning there. And I loved being there as well. But as you said, the, the challenges and dynamics that we faced in Salt Lake, I think from the issues that preceded um, most of us uh, to just the challenges of, of hosting the games post 9-11, that's a, I think that that was a big, big accomplishment. And, you know, I, I, I wish I would have uh, known you were going to ask that that question about who, because I would have prepared a list of every single one of those key players that I'd worked with over the years, and in particular on our venue, and they were just all fantastic. You mentioned 9-11. Um, what were the specific impacts in, in your um, particular venues uh, with respect to 9-11? How did that how did that impact you? Well, first and foremost, we were we were worried if we would even host the games or not. That was that I think was the the second thing on all of our minds. The first one, of course, was, you know, the unfortunate circumstances and the people we lost and you know the sorrow of our of our country at that time 
you know, but as we as we started to move forward and understand that, you know, we are going to come out of this and we are going to host these these games no matter what, then that that stark reality of how we are going to keep them safe that became our number one our number one challenge. And again, trying to keep an outdoor venue, especially a venue the size of a of an alpine uh, ski resort, how to keep that safe is very challenging. You can't just throw up a fence. Well, those were dark days uh, in the aftermath of 9-11 for us all. But I want to keep the mood a little bit light here for our for our podcast. And so let's, you know how it is when you do these events, you're sitting in the bar afterwards and you're talking with your teammates, your colleagues, and you're just swapping stories. And someone says, oh, someone should write the book about that one and put it in there. Absolutely. So, so give us a couple of, I don't know, humorous or inspiring stories of planning and delivering the games there in Park Fair City. Fair enough. You know, we... I think that I'll start off with some easy ones, um, you know, trying to work out our relationships with the resort and with the community and trying to convince the Park City community that, you know, 20,000 people coming in for an event on any given day is going to be just fine. We've, we've got more than 10 streets, so we should be just fine. Um, those were always challenging, and I love public meetings, although... Sometimes they were a bit uh, daunting, especially if folks got a little bit too aggressive uh, with their questions or whether or not they believed our answers. Um, You know, we had other challenges on the venue. We were introducing this snowboarding as a sport. We decided we were going to go with a super pipe, which was this gigantic 18-foot wall on a 300-foot snow monument, if you will. And we quickly realized that if you were standing on the side of that where we had most of our general admission spectators, you could not see anything. So we blew snow for about two months and created tears out of snow for thousands and thousands of people to stand on. And when I say tears, I'm talking about 30 to 40 feet tall, looking directly into the pipe. And the views were fantastic. Of course, Park City, uh, uh, the Park City Building Department wasn't so excited about us having this gigantic monolith that people could potentially fall off of. So we came up with some great ideas. We'll just put guardrails in the snow, um, which, of course, nobody had ever put guardrails on snow. And we ended up driving uh, aluminum pipe about 10 feet deep. Uh, into the snow and connecting it sort of like a scaffold and they worked out great and we loaded that venue and it was fantastic Uh, and of course all of the other challenges like I said earlier snow removal trying to work inside of the community trying to create a good security plan those are you know what I would consider challenges but at the end of the day for event people right that's just the stuff we do We did have some other challenges, which I I will share one story in particular, mostly because I I don't know that anybody knows about this, and I hope I don't get in trouble for for sharing it, but um, we're we're past the the statute of limitations, so I think... Yeah, I think so. Um, So one day on on one of our competition days, and I think it might have been the Alpine, yeah, it must have been the Alpine events, 
I, I came into the venue. It was about four, four thirty in the morning, and I'm walking to my office, and my my cell phone is ringing like crazy. And I, I'm thinking, who is up at 4.30 in the morning? And I look, and it, it's the Secret Service agent who was responsible for our security. And I, I can see him. He's only about 100 feet away from me, so I don't answer the phone. I figure I'm just going to tap him on the shoulder in five seconds. And I don't answer the phone. He calls back. And I think, wow, he really wants to talk to me. And as I got closer to him, I notice that there's steam coming off of his his shoulders and his and his head, and it's minus five degrees Fahrenheit um, at that time. And I thought, why is there steam coming off of him? So I tap him on the shoulder and I said, "Hey, Secret Service, unnamed Secret Service guy." I said, "What what's going on?" And he turns around, and his eyes are as big as saucers, and he says, "Don't get mad." And I thought, well, that's a that's a peculiar way to start a conversation. He said, we, we have to go inside. We have to go inside. And I said, all right, we go inside my office. And he says, uh, you know, it's really cold out. It's really, it's, it's really cold and icy. I said, I, I understand that, Brian. I just named him. Sorry. <laughs> I, said, I, I understand. The, the not so secret service anymore. <laughs> all has been revealed. Exactly. So I said, uh, I, I understand it's cold and I understand it's icy. I said, what, what happened? Is, is, is everybody safe? Is everything okay? And he said, well, you know, we, we had a thing, you know, it's very, it's very icy at the top of the hill. And I thought maybe some, one of our uh, security guards had slipped on the Alpine course and slid all the way down this, which is a very dangerous thing because if they don't have a way to stop, they're going to get hurt. And it's very steep, very icy. So Brian continues, and I said, look, look, just tell me what happened. What are we worried about? He said, well, you know, the, the National Guard are up at the top of the mountain. Again, we're going back to this, you know, 9-11 and securing the venue. And we had National Guard units that were stationed on our venue providing us security. And one guy in particular was at the absolute top of the ridge overlooking the Alpine venue, and he was walking on the field to play. And I said, did, did he fall down and get hurt? Is he Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everybody's fine. Everybody's fine. But uh, it's very icy. And and uh, he slipped. And I said, well, what happened? Well, he slipped on the ice, you know, and he dropped his weapon. I said, geez, th- is it okay, though? I mean, did he shoot? Did he shoot some? No, 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 no. Nobody got shot. Nobody got shot. I said, okay, well, what happened? He said, well, you know, he 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 got up and he picked up his weapon and and uh, he was cleaning it off, and he, in, in order to get the snow out of the out of the weapon, he had to he had to chamber a bullet. And I said, "Well, so then what happened? Why are you so worked up about this?" He said, "Well, you know, it's icy up there. It's very icy." I said, "I know, Brian. You've said that to me twenty five times already." And he said, um, "When he chambered the bullet, and it was just to clear out the chain, just to clear the snow out, um, he slipped again." And he fell on his back, and he fired three shots into Park City. And I said, he fired three shots into where? He said, well, in the direction of town, uh, of the Park City town. And I said, and, and what happened? He said, oh, don't worry. Nobody, nobody got shot. I said, well, how would you know? It's 4.30 in the morning, and your guy just fired three shots into town. He said, yeah, but we haven't had any reports, so... We assume everything's okay. 
And I, I, I was stunned at that moment because there hadn't been any shots fired at, at uh, the Salt Lake games. And to my knowledge, that was probably the first time anybody had fired shots into Park City in a long time at least. And I said, uh, I, I have to call the, the, the EOC immediately. He said, no, you can't tell anybody. I said, oh, I, I have to tell. <laughs> and uh, we determined that nobody, nobody was hurt. They, the police and, and uh, our, our UOPSIC, our, our security teams, they checked everything out. Thankfully, nobody was hurt. But uh, that was definitely one of those episodes that was a little surprising, definitely startling. And we didn't share that uh, with very many people. Yeah, yeah, I can't imagine why. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that... Uh... There was a happy ending to that. Nobody got hurt. Everything was fine. (laughs) Exactly. Um, Exactly. My goodness. My goodness. You've done such a great job here just sharing all these stories. (laughs) We could probably talk about all these things. I'm sure it's just the tip of the iceberg, but I know that you're super busy fighting battles with the coronavirus. And so we'll let you return to those battles. But before we do, I have a small assignment for you. Actually, I have three small assignments. They involve music, food, and the games. And I'm going to start with the music assignment first. So your assignment is this question number one with the music. Can you share with us a song that you listened to back in the day during the games? And when you hear this song today, your mind just goes right back to Salt Lake 2002. Well, I, I, I can tell you there's a song that, that um, just reminds me of the games every single time I, I hear it or one by that, that artist. And it, it involves our snowboard halfpipe and uh, our sport production crew headed by Christy Nicolay. For the first time in the games, we gave every, every athlete the opportunity to pick their own music that they would... They would uh, uh, ride the half pipe too. And one of the favorites to, to be a contender, to be a, a podium finisher was this super hardcore kid. I want to say he was from Sweden or Norway and everybody expected that, you know, every snowboarder was going to pick heavy metal and, you know, death metal and some raunchy rap song or something. And, I believe Mitt Romney had some reservations about allowing these athletes to pick their own music because of that, because of that reason. And um, at one point he actually asked me if, if anybody was playing that heavy metal or rap, but this kid picked, oops, I did it again by Britney Spears. And when it came on and he took off, you could just see the entire crowd shocked by this and every time i hear a britney spears song i think back to that moment because there was like this look of of bewilderment on every single person in that stadium that day when oops i did it again comes on so i pick that one all right we're going to add that one to the playlist oops i did it again by britney <laughs> spears now to the food question either downtown uh, near the slock offices there or up there in park city by you did you have a favorite restaurant that you would go to it was your favorite place to go for lunch easy el chabasco 
great Mexican restaurant up here in Park City. One of the highlights of uh, having to drive back from Salt Lake up to Park City for meetings. At the very least, I knew I was going to get a great meal. El Chubasco, anything in particular that you ate there that you'd recommend? Uh, Bisteca a la Mexicana. Mexicana. Oh, sounds delicious. All yeah. right. I'm a huge fan of Mexican food, having lived in Mexico for two years. And so I'm glad you chose a Mexican food place. Final question or final assignment for you uh, this afternoon. Give us your favorite Olympic memory. It could be perhaps a competition that you watched either in person or on the television, or maybe it was uh, something that happened behind the scenes. What one memory just really just sticks in your mind? You know, I think I could pick probably a thousand of these, but um, not to be too sappy. I think my favorite memory was that first team meeting after the first day of competition when Every single plan that we had put together, every member of the team came together and we delivered our first Olympic event and it was amazing. And, you know, we all regrouped in the team in, in our, in our trailers to have that big team meeting. And I'll be very honest. Um, I think it took me about 10 minutes to gather my emotions and, and be able to address the team because it was an amazing feat and everybody did a fantastic job. I literally felt like the only thing we had to do at that meeting was just congratulate each other at that point, because I couldn't imagine anything ever going this well. Wow. What a great memory. Thank you so much for sharing it. When you look back at your time at the games, how did those games impact your life, both personally and professionally? What was the legacy of the games for Chris Crowley? Um, you know, for, for me, I think that it, it really, really illustrated the, the value of, of having that much bigger, um, organization and reliance on other people's expertise, um, to, to overcome a lot of those challenges. Also to realize that the challenges, especially as we're, as we're sort of reaching into a community, um, and trying to gain their buy-in on something that most people have no idea the scope and scale and the impact that these these kinds of events really, really have. Um, you know, for me, it really did open my eyes. You know, working in the San Francisco facilities, these venues had a footprint. They had a very specific impact, and we we could identify, you know, all of those those challenges. But at the end of the day, we did it inside of a of a big box, right? We turned the lights on, we turned the lights off, and there wasn't impact outside of that. The Olympic Games have a much, much more significant impact. They have a very, very uh, significant role in what I think is is the overall vibe and well-being of the community. And they do, in fact, shape what I would consider how you feel about your community post games and Salt Lake. I think, you know, as I look back on the the other games I've worked on, Salt Lake has done a great job with our legacy, with, with still incorporating that Olympic feeling, that spirit into the, into the community and really delivering upon the promises that were made specific to the Salt Lake games and what our legacy would be. All right, Chris. Well, thank you for very, very patiently answering all of my questions today. 
if people want to connect with you, learn more about what you're doing, how might they connect or contact you? You know, I'm on the Facebook and uh, just drop me a line at clcrowley at gmail.com. I can't guarantee that I'm the fastest responder on email or anything else, but I do my best. And I'm always happy to hear from folks. Wonderful. And we're very happy to hear from you. So thank you very much for giving us an hour of your time. Go fight the good fight and uh, help the people in Summit County battle this insidious disease. And please, listeners, like and subscribe to our podcast here, Salt Lake 2002 Retrospective. Thank you. Hey, thanks, Christian. And thanks for doing this. This is fantastic. 